This podcast contains adult themes and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am Sarah and I've got a special co-host. Miss Darcy is joining me this evening. Say hi, Darcy. Hi, guys. Um, for those of you who don't know about our podcast, uh, it's usually me and my sister, but Darcy has been joining me a lot lately because she has a special talent with talking about murder and crime, which is super fun. Um, on this podcast, we talk about strange stuff, crazy cases, and things that make you say, hmm, that was fascinating. In other words, if it's weird, wild, bizarre, and provocative, we're going to talk about it on this podcast. Today we've got kind of an interesting show for the peeps out there. This one was actually suggested to me by Darcy, and can you kind of give me a little background as to why you thought we should do the podcast that we're going to do today, Darcy? Yeah, so we both kind of, I don't know, we've known each other almost 10 years now, and just in talking about doing this podcast, we kind of both revealed to each other that we have um, crimes that hit pretty close to home for both of us that we had never told each other before. Um, and I actually don't have permission to talk about mine and it's, um, I'm super bummed about that. Hopefully one day I will get to tell that one. Um, but I did get permission to tell the story of one of my friends who grew up across the street from a serial killer and had no idea. Yikes. Um, So, Um, this is from my friend Liz. She is from Patterson, Louisiana. It's a very small town. So first Um, of all, how do you know Liz? So I work with Liz, um, at school. And how long have you known her? Um, since I got here. So like a little over two years now. Okay. So does she, does she understand and sort of know about your true crime sort of interest and the sitch with that? Oh, she is equally as obsessed. We talk about it all the time. And that's why she, that's why the story is so crazy because she, um, was telling me this story about how, um, she was grounded. Uh, she was, she was maybe 10 at the time this happened and she was grounded and all of a sudden she sees a bunch of cops drive by and she looks out her window. Um, and there's just this whole thing, crazy thing going on and we're going to get into what happened. Turns out there was a serial killer who lived across the street, um, and she knew about this one incident happening because she kind of saw it but didn't see everything. Um, but didn't know that there were a bunch of other things connected to him. So she went and asked her mom and some friends that she grew up with. And they were all like, oh, yeah, we knew it was a serial killer. And she's like, you know I'm obsessed with true crime. How have you not told me this before? This is crazy. So, like, this is all um, from, like, last week that, that I discovered this. So um, pretty jazzed to talk about it. She might have to be a guest on the show at some point if she's so interested in true crime, because I'm sure she's got some interesting stories and viewpoints as well. I think she would have a blast doing that, actually. Um, So this is, um, I'm going to tell the story, I'm going to talk about the victims first. I'm not going to get into uh, the asshole that did this, uh, because I want to talk about the victims first. So this is um, Morgan City, Louisiana. Um, It's a very, very small area of town, um, and I believe it's pretty industrial. So this is the spring of 1978. Okay. Um, There's a 16-year-old girl, Mary Leah, I believe her last name is pronounced Rodermund. Um, 
she disappeared on her way to a pharmacy. Um, a few days later, her parents received a phone call demanding a $5,000 ransom. And Mary Leah herself got on the phone to let her know, let her parents know that she was okay. But the kidnapper never gave a place to make the exchange, um, and they never heard from her again. Oh, shit. Um, How old so was this, this girl? Happened. She was 16. Okay, so she's a teenager. Yeah, yeah they're all teenagers. And this all happened um, between January and May of 1978. Okay, so it was um, a little while ago. What's not a, a super yeah, recent one? No. Um, so then... Um, Gordon, Mark Canella, who was 17, and Bridget Sons, who was 19, were abducted at gunpoint during a robbery of a convenience store. Bridget worked at the convenience store, um, and it, I believe Gordon was her boyfriend, um, and he would stay there with her at night because she was obviously concerned about working there at night by herself, so he would stay there with her. Um, and they were both abducted at gunpoint. And Gordon's body was found later in a sugarcane field. And Bridget's body was later found in a septic tank. And the septic tank, excuse me, let me start over. And the septic tank is um, across the street from where my friend Liz grew up. Wow. So this is what she saw happening. Um, I don't think she saw any recovery. I think she just saw a lot of police action. Um, But this was right across the street from her. Um, so they found and and recovered the bodies in the the mid seventies. They found them, um, not long after they disappeared. Okay. So your friend Liz was a teenager or was she a young child? She was young. She was a young child. Okay. But she still remembers it vividly. Yeah. Wow. That's gotta be like a really like formative moment when you remember the serial killer living next door. Yeah. I mean, it very well could have been why she's so interested in true crime now, you know? I don't know. We didn't actually talk about that, but that'd be an interesting theory. Uh, But then Judy Ann Adams, who was 15, and Bertha Gould, who was 14, they were taken when they were leaving a church fair. Um, And this one, actually, there was a witness. And a witness said that he saw the girls get into a white car, um, and he was able to provide a partial plate. Adam's body was found in that same septic tank as Bridget. So there were two bodies in the septic tank that they pulled out. Ooh. Um, but Adam's Have you ever been and- anywhere near a septic tank? No. It's a super, super disgusting place. So, like, can you imagine the poor rescue workers that had to get down into that gunk to do that? Yeah. And how disrespectful that is to a body to, do, to basically put it in shit. Yeah, and he... It wasn't, um, it was an industrial septic tank. So it was kind of like a welder's, like a warehouse or something. So it wasn't like a home that he was living in, but he was, that's where he was living apparently. Oh, good Um, Lord. Yeah. Um, and so Mary Leah and Bertha have never been found. And, um, Liz says, so, uh, she says, I remember when they found, uh, this text says three, but, um, it was just two. Uh, two women murdered across the street from us. The whole town went on lockdown. Life was never the same. We couldn't walk to the bus stops alone. Kids couldn't. Kids that used to ride ride their bikes to school couldn't anymore. And then we said, she said, um, the third one, and I believe she's talking about Mary Leah here, um, is still believed to be 
buried in the, in the cement of the Western Sizzlin. It's kind of like a golden corral, I believe. Oh, geez. They, they were building one at the time. And she actually went and looked it up, and the timing does match up. And that was always kind of one of the town rumors. But apparently, and she talks to people who still, I don't know if they still live in town or if they just talk to people who still live in town. But um, apparently that is still kind of a current theory. Wow. I wonder if there's some kind of ground-penetrating radar that could pick that up and see if... I think there is, but, like, when you're talking about cement, there's a lot of metal and, like, rebar that goes in that. So yeah. I don't know if that affects the ground-penetrating radar. But that's also private property. Right. So, so they'd have to, to get permission. That. And God right, knows and they probably okay. don't want the negative publicity from somebody right. looking for a body in their foundational... <laughs> yeah stuff yeah so she her story so um she said she was grounded and she couldn't come out of her room so she was sitting and staring out the window which faced the highway uh she watched for like an hour as cops cop cars and ambulances came by when i told my mom there was something major going on she said go back to your room so you little shit <laughs> yeah pretty much um, i just thought she was trying to distract her to get out of being grounded yeah so, uh, let's see what else she says. Uh, she says, I did just check to see if the timeline lined up for the Western Sizzlin, and it looks like it does. Um, the convenience store that Gordon and Bridget were abducted from was in her neighborhood. So, is there background on why he abducted the people that he abducted? Did he have a thing for, like, certain types of people? Like, is there any so, information on that? So, the... Um, so the partial, they were able, when um, Judy and Bertha were abducted, there was a witness and they were able to give a partial plate. And that was traced back to this guy named Robert Carl Hohenberger. And he was a former volunteer deputy from California who I believe had just recently been released for rape, uh, raping a woman in Riverside. And he made his way to Morgan City um, kind of as a transient. Um, and he got a job as like a welder or something. Um, so he had a little bit of construction type job background. Yeah, I think so. So he always kidnapped his victims from public places. Um, and always on Thursday, which was really, really weird. Um, some weird shit probably happened to him on a Thursday and when he was a little kid yeah, and then he decided he had to kill um, people on Thursday. Yeah. So, um, so he, skips town and they actually arrested somebody in Louisiana as an accomplice. And this guy confessed, I don't have his name, but he confessed. And that's where, that's how they found out about the two bodies that were in the septic tank. Oh geez. Um, but Robert. So had this guy them. not confessed, they would never have found him. Probably not. Oh, they would have just found the one, the boyfriend that was found in the, in the sugarcane field was the, um, only one they may have found. Yeah. That's horrifying. Not too long later, um, after that, they put like a bolo or whatever they put on uh, on his on the license plate, and in Tacoma, Washington, is where our Holy story comes shit. to an end. So basically, he yeah. was making the like a triangular type, like all over the country. Right. So, police lieutenant uh, Erling Marvick was shopping for another car, a second car. And he answered a newspaper ad for a 1970 Valiant. Instead of buying a car, he found himself scuffling with an armed fugitive wanting, wanted for murder, rape, and kidnap charges. 
he um, answered an ad for a used car and he went dressed in street clothes and didn't identify him as a cop or anything like that. He visited the apartment where Hohenberger lived and it was in a commercial industrial section of Tacoma. So not like a, not a residential area. So um, he says he felt there was something rather suspicious about the situation. Yeah. Um, And was a Louisiana car. And he said that uh, Hohenberger said he was living alone there and that he was broke and he um, just needed to get rid of the car to get some money. So the, police officer thought that seemed really fishy so he ran a check on the computer and it was registered to a frank henry green which was an alias used by hohenberger in louisiana and so obviously that pinged it and so they go back to arrest him the following day he basically they get into a fight and he pulls out a gun and (laughs) yeah the way the story says is that um uh the gun went off Oh, so, I'm sure it did. <laughs> yes, like, did Bye. he shoot himself? Did they, sh- you know what I mean? Um, but no one cares. Was, he He's dead. Dying. So there's there's no solution. There's no resolution to this because he ends up dying over over this um, used car situation. And that's the end of that story, which so, is really... I'm not entirely sure how I feel about circumstances like that. When the killer or suspected killer either dies or commits suicide prior to um, being tried for the crime. Because there are a number of people that really believe that they get closure, they get some sort of relief when the person gets convicted or sentenced to death. And then that they feel kind of robbed of that sort of relief when the person takes their own life or is killed before they are actually tried for the crime. And then not to mention the fact that did he really do it? I mean, did, do we see the evidence? They, they usually don't pursue a trial when the person dies. So you never really find out the details in this particular instance. I don't believe they ever found the motivation for why he was, they, they said that he was sexually assaulting these girls, but they don't really know why he killed. Right. And um, and I actually have um, the char- – there's a Charlie Project page for Mary Leah Roderman, and I just want to read a little bit about about um, her. So she was 16 years old at the time. Um, authorities believe Mary was a victim of the serial killer Robert Carl Hohenberger, former sheriff's deputy from California. Investigators believed he used his police badge to lure victims to their deaths. He may have killed up to seven people over a three-month period before his death in June of 1978. Mary was a sophomore at Morgan City High School at the time of her disappearance. She's described as an average student who enjoyed dancing, listening to music, and going to parties with her boyfriend. She had she had, had a job as a department store cashier, but had recently quit. She planned to go to college and wanted to become a psychiatrist. Uh, she's the youngest of six children, and she's never been found. So if you have any information, um, the Morgan City Police would be the person, the people to contact in that case. I think this is a really interesting case in that number one, I've never heard of it. Um, number two, it could be anywhere from zero to seven or even possibly more victims. Um, because this guy has a sheriff's deputy or law enforcement background, who knows what he was able to get away with because he knew the modus operandi. He knew the way serial killers, killers and criminals operated and knew how to possibly evade detection. So 
It's interesting. Um, he was 35 years old when he died. So still pretty young. So whether he had a long history of killing people and killed more than the seven people, who fucking knows? Um, and it's also interesting that he had such a wide range and that they don't know how many people he possibly could have killed. Right. Because I mean, he tried, he clearly traveled a lot. Um, and he was in a lot of different locations. We know he was in California and Louisiana and Washington, but we don't know if he stopped anywhere in between those destinations. Yeah. And we don't know what his motivation was. We know that he primarily strangled the victims, but we don't have a lot of information on this guy. So it just puts it in the category of, was he a serial killer? You decide, right? I mean, we'll never know because he's gone, which is another reason why it's sort of a bummer when these guys take their own life because you don't get the details. You don't get to find out if there are other victims. There is no relief for some people that want to know with certainty that this man killed my my child. Well, and, and that they want to be able to bring their loved one home and do a proper funeral. You know? And they still haven't and been able to find other, that one gal, right? Two, two. Um, Mary Leah and Bertha have never been found. And they, uh, I did read an interview with Mary Leah Roderman's brother, and that they said, you know, they did not want him. They were not satisfied with the resolution of him killing himself or him dying in this in this incident in Washington because, you know, he could have very well been the key to finding finding his sister. What's interesting is many serial killers will look for sex workers. Um, it says that mm-hmm. sex was a primary motivation for this guy, but these were not sex workers. Right. Right. Yeah. They were all, I believe they were all high school students, ordinary girls that had no idea that their life was going to end in this way, which right. is even worse because it's one thing. And I'm not, it's not to say that killing a sex worker is better or worse than killing a normal girl, but these these women that were a victim of this man did nothing wrong. They did nothing to put themselves at risk or in danger. They just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's even more horrifying to me because you can't anticipate right. like they're, that. They're not, what, they're not what's labeled as a vulnerable population. No. Um, right. On good or bad usage of that term. But um, no, I mean, they were just high school girls that were, you know, they were working or they were running errands or they were, I mean, they were going home from, church i mean right just every day everyday activities and uh they were just taken off the street i think for me um growing up in the pacific northwest and um the the, the green river killer was going on at the time when i was growing up and they had not found him until i was i think in college or later um and yeah. that was always a thing and i don't think that it was widely publicized that he was only killing sex workers so there was this sort of end of innocence, I think for my generation in many ways, because we found the Dahmers, we found the Bundys, we found these horrific serial killers during this stretch of time from like the mid seventies through the two thousands, where we found the BTK killer and all these other men who would just randomly or have some pattern in their head where they would find, you know, a woman with brown hair parted to the side. And that was what they found what they wanted their victims to look like. So if you happen to have brown hair that parted to the left-hand side, you are fucked. 
And there's no way of knowing that. And you wouldn't necessarily have any way to put yourself. I mean, you know that if you are working as a sex worker and you are taking drugs and you are hanging out in certain places that your risk of something happening to you in in a criminal sort of an element are increased significantly. But if you're just a normal person, say the girls that were in the Chi Omega sorority in Florida, like they were just normal girls doing normal things, not breaking the law, not doing anything dangerous in their sorority house and they were a victim and sex workers and drug users and things like that that's not um that's not the only reason that those populations are are chosen um it's it's a large reason but but a very big reason is that it's they're generally transient communities they're more difficult to track there's fewer people that are going to report them missing and they're less likely to report any assaults to the police right and so then the I police mean, are left are less likely to put a lot of energy into finding them as well because they're right sex workers right they're pretty much written off as worthless in many ways and it's getting better i think but through the 70s 80s and 90s i mean it was pretty bad i mean there was a complete well, lack of any kind of paying attention to those that segment of the population by police forces they just didn't care well and uh, the green river killer like he literally said he was ridding the streets of trash like that's what that's what he thought his role was and i gotta tell you uh, being living in that community up there and being a part of a particularly conservative and religious background there were many people in those sorts of backgrounds that said great if you're not doing bad wow. things and putting yourself in that position and getting in trouble, then you wouldn't be a victim. So he's doing us a favor. It's just, it, it's appalling. But like there was such yeah. a different viewpoint back then. And it's, we've come a ways since then. I think there's still a long ways to go. But I remember people saying stuff like that, like good riddance. Yeah. I bet there's probably still a lot of people that feel that way now. But hopefully, uh, hopefully these discussions, I mean, just, just, and using the term sex worker, I think, hopefully changes a lot of people's perceptions about it. I don't always use the term sex worker. In certain contexts, I will use the word prostitution or prostitute, but only in the sense that if it happened in the time period where that's what that person was called and it's referred to that in the research that I've pulled up, then I will sometimes use those terms. But if I'm talking about in a broad sense or a general sense and talking about people now, then I will try to use sex worker whenever possible. But, you know, for listeners out there who are like, oh, I heard the word prostitute. It's in a certain context. And right. in no way do, am I meaning to be disrespectful towards anyone that's in that profession, because quite frankly, it is the oldest profession in the world, yeah. period. Um, or one of the oldest. And number two, I it's not it's not our place to judge anyone for for being in any one particular profession, it is legal in some countries in the world and in some states in the U S it's legal. And then the third portion of that is just because they may do something that's not that you don't agree with, or that is not legal does not mean they deserve to die or be injured or hurt or abused period. So this particular episode, we're calling too close for comfort just for a number of reasons. If you grow up across the street from a serial killer or you live across the street from someone who's murdered people, that can be a pretty uh, scary instance or circumstance. But Darcy, do you have anything to add to your, your story or are you finished with that one? No, that's it. That was, that was the end of that one. 
So this next portion is something that I have not necessarily talked to a lot of people about for obvious reasons. Um, It's not necessarily something that people share in common conversation or, and it's not necessarily something that you would be proud of in normal circumstances, but something that I discovered when I was a young child was that my grandfather was given the death penalty in the state of Oregon for killing a woman and her child. So the case happened in the early 60s, but the information is a little sketchy when it comes to this. I knew that my grandfather had gotten the death penalty Um, My mother told me that he was dead because I asked questions and wanted to know about my relatives. And she told me when I was probably about 10 or 11 about him, but she didn't have a lot of detail. So I did a little research. There's a little bit more information on the internet about him. His name was Leroy Sanford McGay, and he was indicted for the murder of Ron Cameron Holt, a child 23 months of age. He entered a plea of not guilty and gave notice of his intention to prove insanity as a defense. So he was basically saying, hey, I don't know what happened. Um, But the jury found him guilty of murder in the first degree and did not recommend life imprisonment. The mandatory death sentence was imposed at that point. um, And that was in, all right, hang on, that was in 1962 that that happened. Oh, wow. It was affirmed May 23rd, 1962, and it was argued in front of the Supreme Court of Oregon April 9th, 1962. So obviously when somebody gets the death penalty, they are – there are a number of appeals that go forward after the initial case in order to try to prove that no error happened during the trial, nothing untoward happened during the trial so that that person could justly be put to death for their crimes. It's interesting to kind of hear some of the facts behind this case. And then also I had a conversation with my mother about him because she knows a little bit about him as well. And that'll be kind of an end note to this conversation. But um, it appears that there is very little to dispute about the facts in this case. The defendant for about 30 days prior to February 13th, 1961, had been living in an apartment in Central Point in Oregon with Loris May Holt and her child, Rod Cameron Holt. So he'd only been with this woman for a very short period of time and only living with her for about a month. Um, And this this was not your grandmother, just for clarification. this was not my grandmother. He and my grandmother had been through a divorce um, shortly before that. So they were no longer together. I don't, my grandmother had passed away in the 90s. Um, She ended up having a stroke. She was a breast cancer survivor. Um, and then she had been through chemo and radiation and it just pretty much fried her cause she had been through early chemo and radiation and they really hadn't perfected it. I think at that period in time. And so she ended up, they were having a heart attack or a stroke and was on life support for a few days before they ended up taking her off cause she didn't have any brain activity. So right. it's not as though I could go ask her questions about this, but if she was still alive, you better believe I would ask her about it because I find it very interesting and I, and I want to understand But um, on the date mentioned, the defendant killed both Miss Holt and her child. Here is the confession that he gave that was part of the court record. So he says, I got up about 5.30 a.m. and built the fires. I made some coffee. I took a cup of coffee to Loris while she was in bed. I next cleaned up the front room and kitchen. 
About 7.20 a.m., Loris had got up and come out into the front room. She had to slip on and came out there and put her hose on. Before this, at about 7 a.m., she asked me to call the cleaners where she works and tell them she was sick and would not be to work. I made this call between 7 and 7.20 a.m. After she had put on her hose and was bent over putting her shoes on and she had her back turned toward me, I don't know why I did this, 6.45 a.m.-ish, but I picked up a claw hammer off the bar and struck her on the side of the head. She fell to the floor. I next went to the mantle in the front room and got a twenty-two revolver, which was loaded. I shot her in the back of the head once with this gun. I next put the gun on the couch. I picked her up and drugged her to the bedroom closet. And this is his direct testimony, so some of the grammar and language in it is not necessarily the neatest and most tidy, but this is his exact words. I returned and got the hammer and struck her a few times more in the head. So after he'd shot her in the head, he struck her with the hammer more. I went to the kitchen and got a knife. I put the knife about where I thought her heart was and I pushed it in. I pulled it through the back and put it and threw it in the back of the closet. I went back to the front room and picked up the gun. I returned to the bedroom and put the gun in the dresser. I next looked in the closet at her. I came out of the closet and looked at the baby and it was asleep. I was wondering what to do with the baby. I did not want to go to the wrong, I did not want it to go to the wrong people like his father, so I struck him with the hammer on the head while he was in the crib. I next picked up the hammer, baby, the baby, hammer, and blankets and carried them to the closet and put the baby beside her. I also put the hammer down there. I returned to the bedroom and took a blanket or quilt off the trunk and carried, and covered them in the closet with it. I put the gun in a paper bag. This bag had a towel shirt and a thermos of coffee and a few personal items in it. I left the house and the front door locked as I left. I put the bag in the car. I could not get the car started. I returned to the apartment the apartment to see if I had left something and also to leave the car keys and took another look at them. I wanted to look, I wanted it to look as someone had broken into the apartment. So I went outside to the bedroom window and cut the screen with my pen knife. I returned to the bedroom and opened the window from the inside. I put the TV, oh no, excuse me. I put the table with the TV on it against the front door. I also pushed a chair against it. I left by way of the bedroom window. This is interesting because he did not get tried and convicted for the death of Loris May. And I think the reason for that was because he was pleading insanity or they thought that he was going to plead insanity. So if you think someone is going to be getting off or have a good defense to whatever you're charging them with, you are obviously going to charge them with something you think you have the best chance of winning a case on. So it is therefore less likely that he could plead temporary insanity when it comes to the child. Um, He could always say that they had a lover's quarrel and that he lost his mind for a moment because she said something nasty to him and that he killed her at the spur of the moment. And then there would be more issue as to whether they could actually find convict him of that crime with the adult female. Whereas the child, there is slightly less opportunity for him to be able to successfully claim an insanity defense when it comes to a small child. Well, and in his um, confession, he basically says he decided he was going to kill the child. Yeah. Yeah. And he thought about it, put some time and effort into the the killing of the child and what would happen to it if, if, you know, if it lived and the mother died. But, um, interestingly enough, there's a little bit more information on him. He was the last person to die in the gas chamber in the state of Oregon before they put a moratorium on execution. Um, they since lifted that, but 
He died in the gas chamber on August 20th, 1962, they say, for killing a child with a hammer. The, uh, the time period between uh, sentencing and execution was really, really short yeah. back then. Isn't that crazy? And I didn't really, it was so short even up to the 60s. I knew like, you know, like 1920s or 1800s, it was very short, but I did not realize in 62 that it was just a matter of a couple months. Yeah. And they like pushed whatever stuff through that they could. Um, in a very short period of time. But um, I also looked up, there's a picture of him. See, the thing with my grandfather is he was a very, from what I understand, because I had a conversation with my mom shortly thereafter, um, after reading this article and finding most of this out. Like I said, I knew that he had been given the death penalty. I did not know whether it was the electric chair or the gas chamber. For a long time, I thought it was the electric chair, but it actually was the gas chamber. So for a long period of time, I thought that it was the electric chair, and I told a couple people about it, but not because I was necessarily proud of it, but because I wanted to freak them out. Like schoolmates yeah. that I was annoyed by, I was like, hey, my fucking grandfather did this. Don't mess with me. Right. I have I have this in me. Um, but from what I understand, he was in the military, and I was trying to find, I had previously found um, he was a corporal in the u.s army he was not a bad looking guy he was born in saint helens columbia county oregon um he my grandmother was actually his second wife um he was married to another woman first um who was a native of california and that ended in divorce uh he then served in the u.s army during world war ii he enlisted at the presidio in monterey california and later worked as a logger so it says in 62, he was put to death for the double murder of a mother and her two-year-old daughter. But this is incorrect information. It was actually a little boy, um, which is interesting because I never, I had always thought it was a little girl too until I actually read the case and it confirmed that it was a boy. But he was the last person executed in the gas chamber in Oregon in 64. Oregon voters repealed the death penalty. This remained in effect until 1978 when the voters approved a ballot measure to reinstitute the capital punishment by lethal gas. So he was in the military. He was a very kind of strict disciplinarian from what I understand. And the other thing that my mother relayed to me about him was that he was very, very charming and he was a pathological liar. He basically, she told me that it's her belief that he was a serial killer and that he got caught with, Holy after God. having killed Loris, um, the woman that was the last woman that he killed, but that he had spent a number of years prior to that in the logging industry up in Alaska and that she believes he killed other women up there there were disappearances and there were some things that were a little bit shady and sketchy that he had come back down to Oregon after they happened and they because the the system wasn't hooked up back then yeah. and they didn't have a lot of yeah. the crime evidence and they didn't do have electronic databases linked that it was a lot easier to commit a crime like that and then leave right. and then no one would find you because they didn't do the the DNA wasn't there and all that kind of stuff so she believes that had he not been caught in the last instance that he would have killed more and that he did kill prior to having killed Loris and her little boy. How was he caught? Do you know? Um, it doesn't say. There's just, there's not a lot of evidence when it comes to this. There's not yeah. record behind it. And did he have a history of violence like with your grandmother or with his first wife? Do you know? So it's my understanding that he was severely abused as a child. 
He went through very, very, very dramatic and drastic child abuse. They locked him in the closet. He was not allowed to eat sometimes. He was beaten severely. He was chained up like a dog and just treated, just just abused horribly by my great-grandparents. He, he had a temper. Um, and I'm not sure if he abused my grandmother or not, but my mom has memories of him, of him and, and her brothers of physical and sexual abuse. There's a lot of damage that this man inflicted on a lot of people. And the thing is, I guess when he was in one of his moods, he was very, very dark and abusive and angry and just nasty. But when he was in a good mood, he was charming as fuck. So did like he, Dr. Uh, Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That you know about? What was that? Do you ha- did he have any siblings that, that you know about? I don't know. Um, I know that when you look up his name, it does not list or talk about my grandmother and, and his kids. It talks about his previous marriage and his previous kids, but it does not talk about my grandmother or her kids. And my mom is like relieved by that because she doesn't want to be associated with it. She doesn't want anything to do with it. And she actually had told me she didn't want me to talk about this on the podcast, but you know, it's a matter of public record and I don't mention her name and she doesn't have the same last name as me. Um, so I feel like, you know, and not to mention the fact that I don't really understand what there is necessarily be ashamed of this. I have nothing to do with this. I never knew the man. i had nothing to do with him. And my mother, she, I think he left when she was very small. I think she was born in 57. So I think she was seven or eight or maybe younger than that, probably five or six when he left them. So she doesn't have very many memories of him. But it sounds like what she does have, those are very sensitive and... Yeah, well, he had, a, I think, a bigger yeah. impact on her brothers than he had on her, because they were a little older. I believe okay. my mother's the youngest of five kids. Okay. Three boys and two girls, and she's the youngest one. She's the baby. So wow. that whole side of the family is really riddled with criminal behavior, with abuse, with just nastiness and I haven't talked to them or had anything to do with them since I was a kid. I think when I was old enough to make the decision not to speak with them, I wanted nothing to do with them. I know that one of my uncles went to prison and spent a good number of years in jail for I think burglary and some other stuff, but he was just a nasty, nasty person. And there was a lot of like sexual abuse and physical abuse and just criminal element in that. And just petty stuff like breaking and entering and just gross. It was just nasty. And we spent a little bit of time with them when we were very small because I think my mom didn't really understand what was going on. And she didn't have a lot of options because she was a single mom for a good portion of me growing up. And so she had my uncles babysit us until she found out how like warped and twisted they were. But I think she kind of blocked out a lot of stuff from her childhood, to be honest. Yeah, um, my mom has said something similar to me about that. Um, nothing from her parents, but I think, um, I don't even know if it was like an acquaintance or I don't know that anybody in her family, but she has said that she thinks that she, you know, something may have happened, but she's blocked it out. She yeah. doesn't have a memory of it, but she's kind of suspects something may have happened, but I don't know. Like that's, that's literally all I know, you know? I mean, the thing with my mom is she was never a warm and fuzzy person. She was never a hugger. She was never, I mean, don't get me wrong. She, she loved us and she provided for us and she did everything she could, but she was kind of crippled emotionally. 
and never really, um, like if we had a problem, like something bad happened and we came home crying and we were like, Oh my gosh, I'm so devastated. This happened. Most moms would give you a hug and be like, honey, it's going to be okay. You're going to be fine. My mom would be like, shut the fuck up, buck up. You're going to be fine. Go deal with it. Don't cry to me. Just go deal with it. Right. Yeah. So I remember just never having a mom like, you know, I always wanted the leave it to beaver mom or the, the Brady Bunch mom that would, you know, cuddle you when you were crying and, and tell you, you know, everything's going to be okay, sweetie, and give you a nice big hug. And I think you probably, everybody probably wants what they, like the opposite of what they had, because I, you know, like I have known people that have had that leave it to beaver mom and it's like hovering, you know, it's like, all right, that's too much. <laughs> maybe but I just have always been interested in my grandfather um neither one of my grandfathers were and I think he's a pretty attractive man um just from seeing the pictures of him and I could see where he would be charming but I never knew either one of my grandfathers my one grandfather the obviously died in you know 62 before long before I was born um, and then yeah. my, my father's father died in a hotel room in Seattle of cirrhosis of the liver. He bled out oh, in a God. hotel room. And oh, he gosh. was significantly older than my father. He was in his 60s when my dad was born. So he, I think, passed away when my dad was 11 or 12. So both my parents okay. lost their parents when they were relatively young. Yeah. Or lost their, their fathers. So we never knew the grandfather's. I and mean, in either one of those instances, and they both had sort of a similar kind of transient lifestyle. My grand, my grandfather on my father's side was a taxi driver and he struggled with alcoholism. He had a whole nother family up in Canada. Um, oh my God. That he was married to before he married my grandmother and he and my grandmother got together a little bit later in life. He was about 20 years older than her and they ended up having kids when she was in her late forties and he was in his late sixties. So, wow. It wasn't though he di- as though he died young. Um, you know, he was right. in his seventies when he died. But it just seems as though both of them, the deaths of both of those men in my family, are tragic. And it, I think, kind of as a result, it sort of damaged my parents in ways that they don't understand, and they and they certainly sure. don't acknowledge in many ways. Well, I mean, I think I think that that's probably true for anybody that loses a parent young, but especially like to lose a parent like in those, those ways, you know what I mean? Like those are, those are both very traumatic and tragic. Yeah. I mean, my father, God bless him. I love my dad, but he never knew how to be a dad. His dad was never around, never. And it it sort of, I think reiterates the importance of parents when you have kids of showing them what it means to be a good parent because if you don't then they're going to try to figure it out on their own and it may not be pretty like my dad just was not a good parent he had no clue what it meant to be a parent and and how you need to be responsible and it's not intuitive it really isn't for some people some people like pick it up instantly and then and, and pick it up intuitively but other people just they need to have it modeled for them and my dad needed it modeled and he never got it i mean my, don't get me wrong my dad loved us to pieces. He loved us more than anything in his life and would have done anything for us. But the problem was he did not understand what it meant to be a dad and what was normal and what, how he was supposed to act. And he just screwed up on so many levels and didn't understand that he was screwing up. And he was just so damaged as a person. He, he was a heavy, heavy alcoholic, 
drank very, very heavily for a lot of years and didn't really understand the ramifications of that either or why he was even doing it. It just felt good to him to be numb. I, man, I, like, I hear stories like that and I just, I don't know, I got very lucky uh, with the parents that chose me. People don't understand how lucky they are. (laughs) Yeah, like, I... I mean, I certainly didn't have a, like a perfect childhood. I did. I was, I was a dick in my teens. Um, and my sister and I fought just nonstop, like knockdown drag out fights, not physical fights, but just screaming at each other all the time. Uh, which certainly wasn't easy. Was your sister also adopted? Yeah. Okay. So two adopted teenage girls. Wow. And you were adopted as a baby. Uh Yeah. We were both adopted when we were a baby, but Fortunately, both of my parents work in soul health, and I guess that that has, specifically my mom has worked a lot with kids in mental health, and, and my dad works with a lot with addiction, actually. Um, and I think that that really kind of gave them another way of looking at how to raise kids, because like they had that educational background and yeah. also the parental instinct, you know? I'm just super, super grateful that I'm very close to both of my parents and like, like I can tell them anything. Like I truly consider my mom one of my best friends, you know? Um, and I kind of forget how rare that is. Oh yeah, Um, it is. And I love my mom and I, I have a better relationship with my mom than I ever have. But when I was a kid, I was the parent and my parents were the children and that that shaped who I am today. But I, I wonder in many instances and I have for years sort of what was going on in my grandfather's mind. What felt like, what would it feel like to hit her in the side of the head with a hammer? Like there's all kinds of accounts of him just saying, well, I just wondered what it would be like to hit her. And so I hit her. Like what was going through his head? Was that actually what happened? Was he lying? Like what? Right. Like, the if, guy was a manipulator. Right, that never happened. So obviously right, he was saying what he thought he needed to say to be able to plead an insanity defense. So what really happened? And, and you know, and I wondered when you were reading his confession, did she actually ask him to call her work? You know? Yeah. Is that just something he put in there? Did so she? He, maybe he killed her. Did she tell him to leave? Her, you know? Did she say, I'm done right, with you? Yeah. Please leave. And he got pissed and killed her? Like, I just, I wonder what happened. And what happened in his mind to where he would ever think that it was acceptable and okay to kill somebody? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't know. I I think that's kind of like the the reason we're all so interested in this whole true crime phenomenon, right? Like, because we're not those people that that do those types of things. So we can't understand that, that mindset. Like, it's like trying to use logic to explain an illogical thing. Like, you just can't get there. Yeah. Well, I mean, in my head, too, I think this is my blood. What if this mental illness or whatever it is that he had is genetic? What if one of us has oh. this? There are, he had five kids. No, actually, he had more than that. My mother was one of five kids, but he was actually married before my mom and had kids with that woman as well. So is this something that's genetic? Well, if it is, it's not like it's a predetermined destiny. Is like this an environmental? Is this an environmental thing or is it a genetic thing? And will one of us have that? It's a darkness that exists in you. And is it a genetic thing or is it an environmental thing? I think darkness exists in everybody. And I like the people that say, um, oh, he would never do something like that. I I think that's a crazy thing to say. I would never say that about anybody I know. I, I just wouldn't, it's not that I think people would, I know would do that. It's that I would never say 
that nobody I know would ever kill somebody. Because as soon as you say that, you get proven wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, and it's just like I don't know what what scenarios are going to happen. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't think anybody I know would intentionally do something, but I also have no idea. Like I would just like I. Everybody has darkness, and everybody has moments where they don't feel in control. But I think that I mean the difference is the reason is that is that you haven't done this. How old was he when he died? Thirty five. No, that was not him. Sorry, he was not 35. He was born in, he was 41 when he died. So he was my, pretty much my age when he died. And you haven't killed anybody. Yeah, but there are serial killers who waited a little bit later. People who've killed and waited later. I think the age is like uh, 28 to 32 of when people start, like serial killers start. I'm not saying Um, I'm going to go be a serial killer. Like that's not, I don't think that's in my, my future. I'm just saying like. These are choices that we make. It's not It's not an uncontrollable thing. But I also wonder how much his military service played into it, too, because World War II was an awful, awful war. Did that play well, a part in it? Was that something that created this in him to where death wasn't a big deal? Because he'd seen it already. I mean, well, first of all, did he actually serve overseas? That's a question. Like... Tons of people joined the military and didn't go anywhere. But also, if it just became this whole phenomenon, I think, I think we, I mean, we just would have seen a lot more of that of, of this story. You know what I mean? Like we would have had how many people coming back, not thinking death was a big deal. Well, I mean, there are lots of stories out there with soldiers and and veterans that came back and had a very hard time fitting back into society. That's not a new phenomena. No, certainly not. But I don't. Like, what I'm saying is I don't think that, that that's what this is. Also because this was almost 20 years post-World War II. But did this create you know, this in him? Or was it his childhood? I mean, it's it's always been something that I've thought about and wondered, you know, what was going through his head and what he actually – because no one knows what he suffered through except him. And, you know, we hear stories about it and we hear the things that have come to us trickle down second, third, fourth, fifth account about what happened to him and why he ended up being such a monster. But who knows what actually really happened? It could have been much worse than what we even can contemplate. And it could have been nothing. It could have been right. fabricated. I mean, who knows? I don't know. I mean, and what, know. was I'm he schizophrenic? Like, was he mentally ill? What I mean, what what was his I mean, they didn't look to those things back then they really didn't they would have caught schizophrenia because that would have been schizophrenia shows up when you're uh late teens early 20s and that would have been about it was the 60s did they really like diagnose that shit before they put somebody you know convicted somebody i'm saying it would have shown up um when he was younger than that it would have shown up when he joined up in the military would it and they would have seen yeah schizophrenia typically presents um when you're late teens early 20s i mean there are people that can hide it pretty well and it's not like the medical exams for the military were comprehensive back then. They were just looking at your flat feet and make sure that you could see. That's what I'm If you got kicked out for flat feet, you're going to get kicked out for auditory hallucinations. Yeah, but how thorough were they when it came to that shit back then? I'm just saying. I think. I, I'm just saying. I think they would have caught it. I think. I don't so know. I don't. I don't think you think he was a sociopath and not a psychopath. There's not a difference. So he's not like schizophrenic. He's just like a master manipulator. I don't know what he is. I, I'm saying I wouldn't. I I wouldn't say uh, 
schizophrenia because the other thing is people with severe mental illness are not much more likely victims of violent crime than commit violent crime. It's funny because I remember being in like junior high and there was like this group of girls and I remember them just like being really snotty to me. And I remember just thinking, what can I say to these girls to just get them to shut up? Cause they're so obnoxious. And I remember telling one of them because I wanted to like, cause she was a talker and she was always like blah, 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 running her mouth. And I remember telling her that my grandfather had gotten the electric chair and obviously he got the gas chamber, not the electric chair. But I remember telling him, telling her that he was a serial killer and that he had gotten the death penalty and <laughs> just watching the look on her face and how yeah, horrified right. she was. Just like, I mean, yeah. And of course, I grew up in a really conservative, rural, religious community in the middle of nowhere by the Canadian border. And just seeing the look on these girls' faces. Like, how and just throughout your school? Getting this certain, like, gleeful satisfaction of being like, Ha! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't fuck with me. <laughs> you thought you were badass. Well, fuck you. <laughs> what if she came back with something crazier? Oh my god, never. Those girls, like, even if there was something crazier, there was just this whole mentality that my family's better than yours. My parents went to college. My parents are this. My family's this. We're we're old royalty. We're this. We're that. I'm connected to so-and-so, and so we're better than you. Everything was about that. Yeah, that sounds like my high school. Um, that sounds – I think that's a thing that happens everywhere. And I remember just being like, well, fuck you. I don't want to be part of your clique. I don't want to be part of these kids who are connected to such and such. My grandfather killed people. <laughs> fuck you i was proud of it yeah as weird as that sounds although i, mean, I do certainly unique. i do feel bad for the woman and her little boy because clearly she wasn't anticipating it but like i do wonder as well like was it an abusive relationship or was it kind of in the honeymoon phase and they'd only been seeing each other for a short while and she didn't know that he was capable of something like right. that it's a shame there's not more information about just the circumstances of it no, and everyone, everyone that would know that information is long since passed away. So, right, it's not like I could go collect it at this point. Yeah, it, I mean, it would be nice if there was like a news article or something. Like, it just it it kind of stinks that the, that the only only part of the story we know is based on his confession. You know what I mean? Well. And the thing is, there's a lot of news articles about it, but I think all the details are overshadowed by the fact that he was the last man in that state to be uh, put to death before a moratorium on the death penalty. And then so like he gets all the records and all the all the the pops for that particular thing rather than for the details of his crime. And I think they sort of focus on that and lose out on all the other details because of that fact. Was he, um, have they executed people since they brought yes. back the death penalty? They brought it back in 78. Um, I don't think they've executed anyone in a very long time now. Cause I don't think, let's see, let's find out. But they have since 78. Yeah. They brought it back in 78. Well, I know they brought it back, but I'm saying did, did Oregon execute anybody since they brought it back? Cause that was when the national, they brought it back nationally in 78. Oregon death penalty information center is an actual website. Yes, they have the death penalty. It was reinstated in December on December seventh, nineteen seventy eight. 
It was first adopted in Oregon in 1864. Hangings were carried out publicly until 1903. Oregon established the death penalty in 1914 via popular vote, and it was reinstated again in 1920. In 1964, voters once again voted to repeal the death penalty. On November 5th, 1964, two days after Oregon voters abolished the death penalty for the second time, Mark O. Hatfield commuted the death sentences of three inmates on death row, including the only woman ever to be sentenced to death in Oregon. So that was a little bit shy of my grandfather's death. He commuted the death sentences. When was his? This was November 5th, 1964. So two years after my grandfather was put to death, he like commuted the death sentences and said, hey, we're not going to do this. But it was reinstated in 1978. uh, When was your grandfather's? 62. On November on November 22nd, 2011, governor declared a moratorium on execution saying I refuse to be part of this. So he got rid of it in 2011. Sarah. What? What when in 62? August. I think he was the last execution in Oregon. On August 20, 1962, the last execution in Oregon took place. It's from the Oregon Department of Corrections. See, that's what I was thinking too. So, Leroy Stanford, that's him? Yep. Yep, last one. So he has that glorious little <laughs> record for himself. So it has been allowed since he was put to death, but he essentially was the last man to be put to death, and everybody else, not today, Junior. But it's yeah. interesting because there was quite a bit of argument going on I mean, whether he would be able to have his sentence commuted, and they put him to death pretty quickly. Yeah. So if it would only, if he'd only held on a little bit longer, he may have gotten his sentence commuted, and he may, you know, still be in prison today. No. Yes. Since 1962. Yes. What year was he born? He was 40. He could be in his 80s. Are you doing the math correctly? (laughs) Because my grandmother was 100 years old. My dad's mother, when she passed away. He'd be 97. He could still be alive. Unlikely. Not in prison. <laughs> this mineral in little cages. But he could no, have, no. you know, conceivably stayed alive quite a bit longer in prison. Quite a bit longer, yes. And then maybe died of something else. Who knows? In any case, let's go ahead and wrap this episode up. Shall yeah. we? I think that's a good one. I think we've beat this horse to death. Yeah. All right, this is the point where we are going to go say goodbye for now. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send us an email. We would love to hear from you guys. We're at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. We also have some social media. Darcy, you want to talk about that real quick? Yeah, we have a Twitter. We are at thebfdpodcast. And then we have an Instagram where we are at podcast.addict. And we also have a sister podcast called Hypochondriac's Almanac, which is pretty fun. We talk about medical news, weird diseases, symptoms, everything strange and bizarre in the medical field at the moment. That one's pretty fun, too. Both of this podcast and the other one are available on all major podcast platforms. Um, Feel free to check us out on Facebook as well. We have a Facebook group for um, the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast, as well as Hypochondriac's Almanac. In the meantime, please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stuff. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye. Bye, guys.